The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. We see in Genesis chapter 3 the effect of evil on human nature. We see the effect of evil on human relationships. We discover here that fear is the result of guilt. That self-vindication comes before confession. That perpetual conflict exists within the human experience. That there is a struggle for domination and manipulation among people. Then we see that life continues with the birth of children and that hope exists because God promises a seed. Not just a seed, a victorious seed. We move through this text. It should bear a weight on us. This is a historical account of an actual happening that affects us today. It begins with the temptation and the fall. First on the scene is the tempter. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now you need to understand this from the beginning. As this was written into the original audience and they hear the word serpent, they are immediately confronted with the antithesis of what they know. For in the ancient world, a serpent was considered the God of healing. You still see this in the insignia of a physician or on the side of an ambulance, a pole with a snake wrapped around it. Genesis does not see the serpent that way. The serpent here is more than a beast of the field, though he is a beast of the field. We know he's not an average snake because this snake talks. It's a disguise. So who is he? Who is this serpent? Well, we have to go all the way to the very end of the book. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. And the Bible clearly identifies for us who the serpent is. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. He's the deceiver of the whole world. John 8, says he's a murderer and a liar. He's thrown down with the angels. And according to 2 Peter 2, 4 and Jude 6, this happened when they sinned prior to the creation of the world. But here in Genesis chapter 3, the appearance of the snake prompting Eve to sin has some mystery. Because the text is not interested in the origin of evil or the nature of the snake. It's concerned with what the snake said. 
So that leads us to the temptation. Now I want you to pay attention with me here. Three times the word of the Lord is quoted, but never appropriately. Once it is questioned with a misleading quotation. Once it is paraphrased with major changes. And then it is flatly denied. The serpent begins with a suggestion. He doesn't argue with Eve. He doesn't enter into a biblical debate with her. He just starts with a suggestion. Did God really say? Did God actually say? Is that actually what he said? That you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? By the way, did God say that? No, it's not what he said. So you see him twist right away what God has said. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree of any garden? You see, if precise wording of the commandments of God are weakened, then the appeal to sin grows even stronger. The word of the Lord in the preceding chapters brought life and order, but the words of the serpent now bring chaos and death. But be reminded of this, friend. God's word is older than Satan's lies. And Satan's lies, though, are shrewdly expressed, and they are often quite effective. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. True statement. But God said, you shall not eat of the true fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. True statement. Neither shall you touch it. Addition. God never said not to touch it. Now we don't know whether Adam, who, whom the injunction was given to, Eve was not yet on the scene when God made this injunction about the tree, the prohibition about the tree. We don't know if Adam added it in his translation to Eve or if Eve added it here on the fly in this moment. We don't know exactly where it comes from. We just know she adds, neither shall you touch it. Then she softens what God says, lest you die. What did God say? God said, if you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. But the servant said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now he quotes God correctly. The surely die part. Then he denies God. He calls God a what? A liar. God's lied to you, Eve. You're not going to die. God knows this. See, now we call God a liar. Now we're going to continue to call his integrity into question. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Eve, God's holding something back from you. And here's what it is, Eve. You will be like God. Mm. Here's the temptation. 
before human beings. You will not surely die, Eve. The first temptation in our minds is we're not going to be punished for evil. If I disobey God, it'll be fine. The other thing is, you'll be like, God, see, this, this desire to be our own man, our own woman, to call the shots for our life, to, to, to be the one who controls our destiny. He makes it appear as if, here's what God's doing. He's restricting the fullness of your humanity, even. This, this, this gets to her. So what follows is the fall. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. See, she, she buys it. If I do this, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm gonna know. You see, what happens here is that she is convinced that if she does this, her life is going to be enhanced. It's going to be better. Does this sound familiar? I'm, I'm missing out here. This, this Christianity thing, this conservative people my parents have raised me to be, I'm, I'm being held back. I'm missing. There's more. And not only is there more, there's no consequence for more. 1 John 2.16 gets to what's going on here. The desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, or the lust of the flesh and the lust of eyes, and the pride of life. <laughs> Better than God. So she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. All right, get this. Here's the implication of the text. Adam is right there the whole time, doing what men do best. Passive men ruin the world. Quiet, saying nothing. But as soon as she offers it to him, quickly, the Bible says, with no discussion, no question, no conversation, he ate. She hands it to him and he eats. And then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now here's what happened at that moment. We're going to ratchet ahead now to the New Testament, to Romans chapter 5, where in chapters 1 through 5, the Bible is unloading for us and unpacking the sinfulness of sin. And in verse 12 of chapter 5, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. This is called original sin. You were born, you were born in Adam's sin. The moment Adam ate, you became a sinner. 
Not only did you become a sinner, you became sinful. You say, well, I don't agree with that. I was born innocent. Really? Born innocent were you? Let's look at what the Bible says about you in, John, in chapter 3 of Revelation. There is none who is righteous. No, not how many? One. No one understands. No one seeks God's. For those of you who've been Christians your whole life, you're deceived. No, you have not. No one seeks God. All have turned aside together with, and they have become worthless. No one does good. And in case you haven't got it yet, it says, not even one. So here's a question that stands in front of you right now. Do I realize that I am sinful? Do I realize that I am a willful sinner? that I stand condemned as God's word clearly states that I am. With that in our minds, let's move to the result of the fall. Now here's what happens. Paradise now becomes a courtroom. And the one whom God created to keep the grounds now becomes a criminal on trial. First we see the confrontation and confession they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Why did they hide? The answer is a guilty conscience. It's that silent voice within us. It's in all of you. It's that voice that keeps you up at night. that voice that you're trying to hush. This culture's making millions off this voice. As psychologists and pharmaceutical companies, alcohol manufacturers and illegal drug users are trying to help people desperately shut this voice up. To stop it. And we would if we could. But instead we hide. We find something to hide behind. In Hamlet, Shakespeare has this famous line, conscience doth make cowards of us all. They feel a sense of shame now in God's presence. Just as every parent can attest. Your kid doesn't have to tell you they did wrong. You can tell. They can walk into your room. What'd you do? Nothing. Nothing. The Lord God said to them, where are you? You see, in this, God's saying, what have you done? What in the world have you done? Do you realize what have you done? Where are you? And he said, I heard the voice, the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. I want you to notice this. 
Who does this all start with? The serpent and who? The woman. Who does God start with? The man. This is God's design. He put the man there first. He gave the man dominion, leadership. And just because the man stood there passively with his teeth in his mouth and let all this take place, God still starts with him. This is where he begins. And here's what Adam does. Ah, it's that woman. No, that's not what he does. And if you think that's what he's doing, you missed it. Here's what he does. It's your fault. You gave her to me. Here's the clear evidence of the wickedness of our hearts. Been answering this question for the last three weeks. So let me just put it to rest as to why you ask it. Well, where did evil come from? You. You cannot lay evil at God's feet. And that's what Adam tries to do here. And God holds him accountable. God is not the source of evil. There is no shadow of turning in him. You cannot, you must not blame God. So Eve's got a convenient one. She uses the Flip Wilson uh, method. And if you don't know who that is, go YouTube him. The devil made me do it. She blames the serpent. But here's what happened, friend. They both sinned and they both compound their sin because they blame others. We are responsible for what we do or what we fail to do and we will be judged by God accordingly. So you can try to blame your background, your parents, your genes, society, your wrong choices will be ruled out of court by God. Notice this though, they both confess. After their litany of blame, I ate. Both of them, I ate. I did it. So let me just pause here for a second. What, what, does, what does this situation in the garden have to do with today? Other than the personal application to us. I wanna quote Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson um, was a man who, who spoke into culture. Uh, he died several years ago. He wrote this quote. All ideologies, all the utopian promises that have marked this century have proven utterly bankrupt. And what he means is this promise that man's come of age, man's, man's figured it out. We're going to reach the zenith of what man is supposed to be. Americans have achieved what modernism presented as life's greatest shining purpose. Individual autonomy, the right to do as one chooses to do. Now, if Colson was still alive, that was an understatement when he wrote it. We live at autonomy. Everybody just do whatever you want to do. Then he says, this has, this has produced not the promised freedom, but the loss of community and civility. 
We now lock down our schools, and by the way, our churches, because children go to schools with guns and shoot children. We now live behind gates in our communities to protect ourselves from those who may come to us. We have discovered that we cannot live with the chaos that results from choices divorced from morality. Simply stated, friends, the evidence of the garden is in your face every day. God comes now with a declaration and a promise. I love this. God doesn't question the the snake. He does not try to arouse a sense of guilt or to get a confession. He knows that Satan is an unrepentant rebel beyond redemption. He knows that the devil will not give an account for himself. So he does not question him. He sentences him. The Lord God said to the servant, because you have done this, cursed are to you above all livestock and above the feast, beasts of the field and on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat the days of your life. So the snake's gonna crawl on the ground and you're gonna eat dust. Now, do snakes actually eat dust? No. So what does God mean here by licking or eating the dust? What God is saying is what you will find in other places in the scripture that after someone is defeated, the word picture is used that they eat dust. He's saying you will be submitted and you will be defeated. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Now, if you think that simply means that we're going to be naturally afraid of snakes, you miss the point. That's not the point. The point is that there will be this ongoing struggle between the human race and evil. That this enmity will continue. However, you have here what's called the proto-evangel, the, the first Good news. It says, he shall bruise your head. He's singular, one offspring shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there's a promise of a coming offspring who will bruise the head of the serpent while the serpent bruises his heel. So it appears on Good Friday as if Satan has struck the death blow to Christ. But here's what we know. All he did was bruise his heel. And we sang with victory just a few minutes ago of Christ bursting forth from the grave as he crushes the head of the evil one. Jesus wins. He is victorious over sin and death and God said it would be so. Now he turns to the woman. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be to your husband and he shall rule over you. Careful women, this is a man preaching, so ease up. 
God is talking about the pain of childbirth. I, I was recently talking to a young man whose wife's about to have a baby and he was talking about, how, how, you know, yeah, I remember this. How are you gonna know it's time to go to the hospital? I said, you'll know. When that hits her, brother, time to go. It won't be kind of one of these, Ooh. it'll be like. <laughs> we men don't know what it is. We don't. Guys, don't ever say you think you know. You young men about to get married, don't ever say it. Just keep it to yourself, all right? God promised this would be so. But God means something more here. In pain you shall bring forth children. There's not a mother in this room who is either raising or have raised kids that their heart has not been crushed in pain by her children. It's the result of the fall. It's the way, the way it plays out. Then he says, your desire shall be to your husband and he shall rule over you. This cannot mean that the husband's gonna be the leader and the wife is to be submissive to the husband because that was already in place prior to the rebellion. This is punishment. So God here is describing both the exploitation of women and the beginnings of what we now call the battle of the sexes. This harmonious relationship of love is wrecked by exploitation, subjection, and this ongoing struggle. Every culture you go to, every one, you're gonna find male domination. Some of it in the most evil, wicked forms. It is a perpetual reminder of the fall, just as the serpent crawling on the ground. But Eve represents the woman and Adam represents the man. So here's what God's saying. A woman at her worst will be an adversary to the man. She will take an adversarial position with her husband. And a man at his worst will dominate the woman. Does this mean then this is all marriage is doomed for? All the gospel, my friend. That's why this long detail in Ephesians chapter five, that in the redemption that is in Christ, husbands, he calls you at length to look to Christ's sacrifice and lay down your life for your wife. To love her, to nourish her as Christ loves the church. And just as the husband is to look to Christ, my dear, he appeals to you, look to Christ and submit to your husband as Christ the Son submitted to God the Father and carried out his will. This is God's plan. Not in this fight 
and struggle for who's in charge and not for this cruel domination, but for loving submission between a man and a woman. Let me just simply say it this way. Every Christian marriage in this room should be a living, breathing, walking picture of the gospel to children, neighbors, the church, and the world. To Adam, he said, <laughs> because you listen to the voice of your wife as opposed to whose voice? God's. Don't miss that, brothers. Don't miss that. Or any other person's voice you want to put in there. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat the bread till you return to the ground. And out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the ground is cursed as a sure sign that now everything is disrupted. Romans 8 says that the, the creation itself is groaning for the coming of Christ. So because Adam ate, he now experienced toil and pain in eating. And this is a perpetual reminder of his sin. Further, humankind thought they could be like God, so God's going to remind them they're not God because dust you are and dust you shall return. So the man has this natural relationship with the ground. He was to rule over it, but it got reversed. Now, instead of the ground submitting to the man, it now resists the man, and then it swallows him. He dies. Listen to me, Christians. Your avoidance of death is preventing the gospel. So every time all we do is come together and celebrate your life without clearly talking about your death, we're missing part of the gospel. Our death reminds us of our need for Jesus. So go ahead and hide your kids from death. And what you're hiding them from is the consequences of sin. Death is our reminder. So let's review. They sin by eating. They suffer to eat. She leads her husband to sin, so now her husband masters her. They bring pain into the world by their disobedience, so they have painful toil in their respective lives. The serpent ruins the human race, so God promises I'm going to destroy you. But that's not the end of this story. There's provision here in prohibition. These provisions are grace because these people deserve nothing. Amen. Nothing. But watch this. This blows my mind. The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of the living. You know what he should have named her? Death. You're the mother of death. But Adam saw beyond what she had done and what they had done, and he saw what God was doing here. The offspring 
the offspring. Eve, you're the mother of the living. Life's coming from you. Not just physical life. He's coming. He's coming. Your, your life. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and he clothed them. Question, how did the animals become skins? They had to die. God's pointing at something here. Here's how God's going to cover sin. Sacrifice is going to be made. Without being called that, here's the first sacrifice, the first covering of sin. And we know ultimately Christ is coming. Then God does something very distinct. He said, behold, the man has become like one of us. Why the plural, the Trinity. And knowing good and evil, now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground to which he was taken. And he drove out the man at the east of the garden and of Eden, where he placed the cherubim and flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Remember I told you last week, there's two trees. They were still able to eat of this tree. Here's the implication. God intended they live in this garden in paradise forever. The tree was to give them life. But now, because they've eaten of the tree of death, God has cut them off from the tree of life. You see, we cannot remain in paradise eating of life while we are still in a sinful state. Sin has caused a barrier between ourselves and God and it has shut us out of the place where God has chosen to reveal himself and to call his home. Sin has not only polluted us, it has now made us unclean so that we cannot enter God's paradise. Now don't miss this. The way back is not hard. That's not the point. The way back is resisted. Or let me just say it clearly. Man cannot now save himself. He is outside of the garden in sin, bound to die. So what must be? There must be a second Adam who by clothing us in his righteousness will take us to the garden. So let's unpack it quickly. Jesus Christ, the promised seed, gave his life as the ultimate sacrifice to rescue us from the fall and to open a new and living way. I start in the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter four, verse four, it says, when the fullness of time had come. You see, this is the beginning of the story. God's gonna keep unfolding this story and he's leading up to a moment. He's building to a moment and it's gonna be a right moment and the fullness of time come and God sent forth his son. What's next? Born of a woman. Why? Because God said in Genesis chapter three, that was going to be. That detail brings you all the way back to Genesis that he is born of a woman. Romans chapter five, verse 19. What you saw in verse 12 is because of Adam's sin, we all sin. But before by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. It's repeated, verse 19. So, So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. You see, Christ had to come. He had to be born of a woman. He had to be born under the law. 
because he had to keep the law perfectly so that he, in obedience to God, could be the perfect sacrifice to go to the cross on our behalf. Jesus was, is the Son of God without sin, yet a real human being. Through the virgin conception, his human nature was a sinless state, just like Adam's was before he rebelled. But unlike Adam, Jesus remained sinless, resisted the devil, and through his death and resurrection has become the head of a new humanity who has opened up a new and living way, Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, There's no mistake here, brothers and sisters. Don't miss this. Adam and Eve have no confidence. They're scared to death. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from what? An evil conscience. And our bodies washed with pure water. Here's what it's saying. That through Christ, we now have confidence, not guilt or shame, to go into a new living way, which is not blocked. And it's not death. It's living. That one way is the blood of Jesus Christ. The head-crushing work of Jesus Christ. So I say to you, my friend, Come out of your hiding and run to Jesus. Think about this now. When you you lay it on top of Genesis 3, when Jesus said these words, I am the way. It's cut off prior to this. I am the way. What's the next word? I am the, as opposed to a lie. And I am the, as opposed to death. No one comes to the Father. Now, for Genesis chapter 3, no one's coming to the Father, right? Cherubim's cutting you off. No one comes to the Father except through me. I want you to turn to Revelation 22 for my final illustration. So one day, the ground's going to swallow you. If Jesus doesn't come back before then, your day's coming. Take all your vitamins you want to, exercise all you want to, avoid all those things you want to. I'm on this gluten-free diet right now. Whew, blessed. There'll be gluten in heaven, I hope. Anyway, keep it up, but the ground's going to swallow you, friend. I stood beside people many, many times in my career who the ground's about to swallow. Some with tremendous fear, a guilty conscience, with words like, I hope so, I hope so, I hope so. Then I've stood at the bedside of people who who see who Jesus is, who trust in who Jesus is. 
And too many times for me to count, sorry, I've leaned down in the ear of a gasping saint and said, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city and also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month and the leaves of the tree are the healing of the nations. And I've leaned in their ear and said, brother, sister, you're about to step into paradise and you're about to take a bite from a tree that's gonna heal you forever and forever. Because the way has been opened to you back to the tree of life through the one who is life, who hung on the tree to give you life. And that is Jesus Christ, our Lord. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. You know what a hardened heart is? It's a person who stopped listening to their conscience. So today, if you hear him, come out of your hiding and run to Jesus. He's the way. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the weight that has crushed me for weeks in preparation, the weight that has crushed these men and women as they have listened, but then the freedom, the life, the joy as we look to Christ. So I pray for every believer now to look to Christ, to lift their head and to, to give thanks for the God of their salvation, that Jesus is the new and living way. And Lord, I pray, Spirit of God, do your work in the man or woman, the young person here who is outside of Christ, condemned by their conscience, that they would repent and turn from their sin and flee to Christ, believing at this moment. We pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.